For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, Heard Tell Show. It is Wednesday, June the 8th, a year of our Lord 2022. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us. Thrilled to have you with us. Appreciate you joining us as we try to turn down the noise of some of the news cycle stories we have going on. A lot of them going on out there. Hope you and yours are well, wherever you're listening to us from across the street or around the world. A lot to cover today. Uh, Cooper Conway, good friend of the program, been here before. We're going to talk some education that doesn't involve school shootings for a change. Uh, Education, school choice, funding, uh, COVID overhang in the education system. Going to get all of that in with our friend Cooper Conway in just a little bit. Also, another major aerospace company is moving to Northern Virginia. A few weeks ago, we talked about Boeing moving to the D.C. area. Now Raytheon's doing it. We'll talk a little military industrial complex here in just a little bit. Also on the program today, uh, California Recall, um, Chesa Boudin, the controversial DA out in San Francisco, was on the ballot for a recall. We'll touch in on how that election result came out. Also, a great story to end the program about a guy and his dog in the shrimp boat. The dog went missing, found its way home. Apparently did quite a bit of swimming for a little puppy. Did well there. Good story to end the program on. I want to read something here from writer Matt Labash who is just as good a writer as anybody um, from his Substack, which I highly recommend you subscribe to. He's a great writer, uh, Matt Labash. Um, but I have some bad news for you. This is him writing about all the bad news you watch. That's making you angry. No matter how much you consume of it, no, they're going to keep making more of it. You're never going to catch up. And so if it's throwing your system off kilter, you're faced with a dilemma. How many shots of poison can you drink in good health per day? There's plenty of good news out there as well, acts of kindness and friendship, feats of generosity and sacrifice. But as my friends in the news racket like to say, good news is no news. A hard reality of the news trade is that ratings and clicks don't get generated, for the most part, by telling an audience how you might have stopped on the side of a busy highway to help an old lady change her tire. Now, if you hit the old lady with a tire iron, that's news they can use. And therefore, bad news does not just exist but it so often becomes amplified out of proportion to the frequency with which it actually occurs. Lately, of course, plenty of bad news has not been fabricated or goosed. It's been real and pervasive. You're not imagining that baby formula has disappeared from supermarket shelves, that you're paying five bucks a gallon for gas, that everything everywhere costs more than ever, and that a worldwide pandemic completely altered the way we lived and interacted with each other, that a new world war could trip off at any moment abroad. And then plenty of our politicians and the death cultists who revere them seem to be itching for civil war here at home. Such is the rough and tumble of life in tumultuous times when precisely times weren't tumultuous, historians can't really specify. 
Again, we're reading from Matt Labash here. But it's not the whole story. We come to believe that this is the whole story, however, because those who are paid to bring us the stories are also paid in part to provoke, to inflame, and to punch our emotional buttons, as all good dramatists do. It's not necessarily their fault or they're acting in bad faith so much as it is the law of good storytelling. A story with no tension tends to not be much of one. As George Abbott, the longtime theater producer, director, playwright, framed it, in the first act, you get the hero up in a tree. The second act, you throw rocks at him. For the third act, you let him down. Plenty of storytellers these days just stop at the second act of let's throw rocks. And an overstimulation of our aggressive impulses tends to warp our perceptions the same way Twitter addicts tend to think Twitter is all that matters because everybody they know uses Twitter when in reality only about one out of every five American adults do. I'm guilty of that one. Uh, back to Matt Labash. This warping was driven home to me several years ago when I was reporting a story on the Americans fleeing to Canada after George W. Bush's second inaugural win. After hanging out with several American expats in the land of the Fleet Streeters, used to call the great white waste of time. Sorry, Canada, but that's my coinage. I hopped back over the border to Bellingham, Washington, about 90 minutes south of Vancouver, where I met up with Christopher Key, who was planning on cashing in his American chips and fleeing north. If his name rings a bell, it's because he is a direct descendant of Francis Scott Key, writer of our national anthem, which to me seems like an act of infidelity, kind of like Prince Harry quitting the Royals so he could become a podcaster Oprah groupie. Key had done some more of his parts as American, mind you. He'd served in Vietnam. He'd got his stitched up with shrapnel. He'd spent many years kicking in our tax kitty as a dutiful capitalist, but now he seemed angry, thinking that our country had gone to an irreversible tailspin over George W. Bush, the kind of gentler option many libs now practically pine for in the smash-mouth MAGA era. It was Key's impression that we'd become less tolerant, more mean-spirited, and judgmental. He said he was somewhat sad to go with all the good friends and neighbors he was leaving behind, but circumstances had taken things out of his hands. When I asked him about those good neighbors, however, he painted an entirely different picture of the country he lived in as opposed to the version that exists on TV Funhouse Mirror. He lived in a mixed neighborhood of Republicans and Democrats. They got together for barbecues and turned out to watch him perform in community theater. Having procured his ordination certificate for 25 bucks off the Internet, he had become a universal life church minister on the side and had presided over several weddings and funerals. There was a tight squad of people who generally cared about each other. It sounded ideal. I asked him why on earth he would leave peaceably in the country he actually inhabited the one Uncle Francis wrote about. Instead of boxing with Sean Hannity's shadow, choosing only to see the polarized, bastardized version that was set to be beamed into him through the cable box. His answer, I'm effing tired and I don't need to rebuild this country. There's a perfectly good one 30 miles away. It depressed me, but it didn't surprise me. Because so often the reality we see through our screens feels more real than the reality we actually live. And our country has only grown angrier and more polarized in 2022 than it was in 2005. Plenty of us have had a part in that. And I can't say I know how to stop it. Though I do know in my own world, I can at least put it to the side and tap down my own worst instincts. I go outside as often as possible. Just as they make a lot of bad news, they make a lot of outdoors too. Conveniently located right outside your door. And I used those outdoors to get away to places where algorithms don't try to program me to feed on my fear and paranoia and rage so that they can serve me more of it. Sometimes to see humanity more charitably, you need to escape it. 
And for me, nature's escape hatch puts the world right because it reminds me of how beautiful the world actually is when vandals aren't defacing it. There are places where I can feel God's rhythms instead of man's, the latter of whom tend to clap on one and the three. I fish, I paddle, I walk my beloved dog, the purest soul I know through the woods. I am never sorry when I do these things, even if the strippers want nothing to do with my fly or if the unexpected squalls turn my kayak into the water trough or the deer flies are biting through my shirt. It still beats subjecting myself to the anger generating machine all live long day because anger is a thief. It will steal everything if you let it. Your perspective, your balance, your peace of mind, As the late great outdoors writer Nelson Bryant put it in a letter to his daughters, the secret I would have you know is that even though your years will steal your fresh beauty, it need only be in truth a minor theft. What you must guard against is that jaded state wherein there's nothing new to see or learn. Marvel at the sun, rejoice in the rhythmic wheeling of the stars and there learn their names, cry aloud the swelling beauty of an orchid in the white oak wood or December's first snow. Slide down the wind with a hawk and cherish the smell of wood smoke and mayflowers or the caress of a warm wool blanket. Tarry by a stream where willows bend and fleas tedium gray embrace. Cherish laughter and whimsy, but battle unrelentingly for what you know is right and be aware that there are thieves of wonder can enter any heart. Matt Labash writing. A lot of wisdom there. Reminded of what my father told me all the time and what he does himself. He's like, hey, just go take a walk. The uh, idiot, the idiom from the internet for this, of course, is go touch grass. But there is a lot of truth to that. We should spend more time doing those things, less time hating on each other online, like we talk about on this program all the time. Perspective. If you don't have it, you can have all the information in the world. It won't do you a bit of good because you won't understand what you're looking at. So we start the program today with a little perspective from Matt Labash and some good plain common sense advice. More Hertel right after this. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to Hertel. Let's go out to San Francisco. Uh, Chase Boudin, the highly controversial uh, district attorney out there, probably the most progressive district attorney in the country, has been recalled and recalled handily. Uh, let's go to CNN. San Francisco voters have recalled District Attorney Chase Boudin. Boudin was narrowly swept into office in 2019 amid voter concerns over police misconduct, criminal justice reform, and mass incarceration in the city. His win was seen as a high point for the movement to elect progressive prosecutors. But his tenure was defined by the coronavirus pandemic and an overwhelming sense among San Francisco residents that crime, especially property crime, was both out of control and not a priority for the district attorney. This caused 
the political winds to shift dramatically against Bodine, with most San Francisco residents signaling on Tuesday that his laxer approach to certain kinds of crimes was unacceptable. The recall was also much about the impression San Francisco residents have of their own city as it was about crime rates. Homelessness and public drug use remain a persistent issue in the city, and residents have reportedly felt uncomfortable in large swaths of the commercial areas because of it. Boudin sought to fight the recall effort early by labeling it a natural reaction to the election of a progressive prosecutor and linking the effort to Republicans and police unions. But those claims didn't move voters, many of whom said they had made their minds up based on how they felt in their city. And while Republican money did help the effort, the push to recall Boudin was initially supported by Democrats. Of course, San Francisco, we know, is a heavily Democratic city. The results in San Francisco will have national implications, too, underscoring just how risky it will be for Democrats to go too far on certain core issues, such as combating crime. San Francisco Mayor London Breed is now set to appoint an interim district attorney. I disagree on one point here. It's not that he was a progressive, although we can debate the policies, it's that you still have to do the job. We've all seen the viral videos out of San Francisco, people shoplifting, things like that. That stuff just politically is going to kill you no matter what you do. So soft on crime is always going to be a problem for people that are progressive and want to do criminal justice reform. There is an overlap between small government conservatives and people that want to do police reform if you handle it right. The problem is things like crime are always going to get you run out of office because kicking indoors and cracking down on crime always polls well and it's always going to go to the votes well. That doesn't that goes counter to trying to get good police reform done. This is going to be an eternal problem that folks are going to have to try to figure out a way to do. How do we get police reform? How do we get criminal justice reform without increasing crime? Chase Boudin couldn't figure that out, and he's paying the price for it. Does that have national implications? Eh, maybe. You still got to do the job you have. Even if you're a progressive prosecutor or conservative prosecutor, if crime rates get out of control, they're going to come looking for you. It's going to be hard. It's going to get harder. But you got to try to do the job that you're assigned to do. The people of San Francisco felt Chase Boudin didn't do that job, and now he's out of a job. More Hurtel right after this. Welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, here's a friend of ours we've talked to before, but it's been a minute. He was busy. He was graduating from college at Boise State. That's the blue football field for those of you that aren't familiar. They actually do educational things there too as well. My friend Cooper Conway, good to see you again, buddy. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I'm so glad to be uh, all set with my undergrad. Uh, Go Broncos. And uh, hopefully our football team will be a little bit better this uh, upcoming year, but I'm glad to be back. Y'all got spoiled there for a while. Now the reality set back in. Yes, that's very true. But uh, our new coach, Andy Avalos, uh, he's he's, he's going to rebuild the program, I think. So um, I have high hopes. Yeah, we're uh, always pulling for the smaller schools. Good for you. Congratulations, by the way. Um, you were studying things like government and policy. Uh, there's one area where government and policy has been really colliding with public perception. That's in education as of late. Um, let's start with something big picture before we delve into some other things, though. 
the first time I met you, I actually had you on the radio about, oh gosh, it's been about a year and a half ago. We were talking education. We're still talking education. Generally speaking, though, um, the debates kind of died down because the economy's taken over other things. Uh, of course, you know, overseas things are going on, gas prices, things like this. I still think there's quite a bit of frustration on both sides, everybody involved here on education from the COVID thing. And I think a lot of these other issues we're dealing with, you scratch under the surface, especially when it comes to, you know, messing with people's kids, like the baby formula thing, you know, people are really touchy about their kids right now. And I think that comes back to this education debate that we've been having for the last year or two. Does it feel that way to you too? Yeah, it does feel that way. Um, people ask me all the time, like, who's the most successful, uh, pro- you know, a proponent of school choice reform. And, uh, you know, I can point to these think tanks or I can point to, you know, journalists that are in favor of school choice. Um, but really at the end of the day, it's parents. Uh, parents want their babies to have the best education possible. And when you stop that from happening, they get angry, um, especially the moms. Uh, you don't want to mess with a group of 10 moms because they're going to get things done. Um, and especially right now, in terms of the American education system, after COVID, we had a lot of um, we've had a lot of problems during COVID and even before in terms of uh, student outcomes and student success. Let's 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 deal with that too because I think this is part of our problem here. You just said it: outcomes and success. I don't think we have a common definition of outcomes and success here, do we? And I think this is the core problem here because the school system, public school system, seems to have one idea of what a core thing and success is. Every parent has a different set of core thing and success here. I, I think right there is kind of the core of this whole problem is we don't seem to have a unified theory of education here, do we? No, we really do not. Um, some parents want their, uh, their students to be able to have the best opportunity to go to college. Um, others have a specific set of uh, moral and civic values that they want um, each of their students to have. And it seems to butt heads with a lot of um, the problems with in terms of curriculum right now in our public schools. Um, and how their ch- their kids are being taught. And this really just, um, the curtain was pulled back during the pandemic uh, as parents for the first time really got an inside look into um, what their kids were being taught. Cooper Conway, Young Voices contributor, Boise State grad, freshly minted, uh, <laughs> joining us here. What I've been explaining it this way, and you can break it down better than I can because you're a better writer about this stuff than I am, though. I think the core of that, though, is we've lost the partnership. Uh, you know, students, teachers, and the kids and the government, that's all got to be a partnership. And it seems like all of that is adversarial. And then when we get to the bottom of all that stuff we just talked about, people being frustrated, people being upset, isn't that the breakdown is that there's no longer a partnership there. This all seems adversarial and it all seems like a fight. Yeah, uh, totally. I mean, the goal of um, traditional public schools, right, is to have a community to come together um, to be able to help out and um, provide the best education for every single child. And right now, that is a definite serious issue in that parents kind of see um, teachers as adversaries and vice versa, and there's not as much communication going on. Um, And that just does not set up, uh, that does not bode well for uh, student success. And the students are the ones that are really getting ripped off in all of this um, as there's, you know, different infighting over uh, curriculum and other issues within the education system. That brings us to what do we do about it, uh, which will bring up the school choice thing. Uh, let's let's have a grown folk talk about this real quick. Um, I'm all for folks that want to homeschool, but that's a specific skill set to be able to do that. That's always been less than 10%. I don't think it's going to be a lot higher than that just because of what's involved in it. I'm all for it. Those folks have a right to do that. 
but people just will just homeschool. That's not a viable option for most American families. Let's just be honest here. So that leaves public school, private school, charter schools. Let's get the nomenclature right here, though. Public school, charter school, private school. Charter school overlaps the other two, but it's also distinct from both. Just give us some terminology before we get into this debate so everybody knows exactly what we're talking about. All right. So charter schools, um, contrary to what some people think, are actually uh, public schools. Um, they are, are, quote, free and open to all. Um, they use public funds, but they are just run by um, private organizations um, that establish a charter and an agreement between themselves and the charter authorizers, who's usually um, some part of the government, either like a local district or like a, a state agency. And so then these charter schools open up and kind of bridge that gap. Um, and these charter schools have a lot more flexibility in terms of being free from regulation. Um, their teachers usually are not uh, mandated to be in a union. Um, and they're able to, uh, they've been a part of our system for uh, nearly 30 years now. Um, they've had um, overall pretty good success. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of, uh, and then private schools are obviously you have to, you have to pay tuition to get in. Um, they're apart from the public system and then traditional public schools. Usually you're uh, zoned in for those, uh, those schools. Yeah. Cooper Conway join us. Okay. Here's the, here's where it gets touchy. And you were writing about this in uh, Ed Post and other places that we've talked about it before. Charter schools are public schools, but they're funded differently. Is that money taking money away from public schools? That's a great question. Uh, and I think that kind of goes back to what is this money supposed to be used for? Uh, the end goal of the money is right to educate the child to you know the best of our abilities. And so when a child leaves um, a traditional public school and goes to a charter school, that money is going to follow them over there. Um, and so in a way, it does, uh, quote, defund the traditional public school. However, you're really funding the student and not necessarily uh, the status quo of the system. And so if the traditional public school is doing um, a good enough job for that child, they're not going to lose any of the funds. Um, however, if the family um, or finds that the charter school is going to do a better job for their student, um, that student hopefully is going to get a better education, and that will be at the charter school. Now, here's where we get into this again. Cooper Conway joining us on Herdtel. Um, with the charter schools, these things, it, it's kind of, how do I want to phrase it? The, these things kind of get broken into our political debates, and they get broken down into things like left and right. But you actually opened up your piece discussing it this way. A charter school can be anything. So say you're somebody who's uh, into environmental issues and you're concerned about LGBTQ stuff. Well, there can be ch charter schools that are very environmentally friendly and cater to people with LGBTQ stuff. This stuff doesn't necessarily have to fall into the political spectrum or fighting it over, does it? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, this is um, people may try to frame it as a, a political debate, but it by no means is it a left or a right debate. I mean, there's um, classical charter schools. Like I said, like you were saying, there's the LGBTQ um, more culturally friendly charter schools. Um, there's charter schools with some more um, anti-racist education. There's charter schools with less anti-racist or like less CRT, I guess would be the kind of the term, the hot term of the day. Um, so if you see one charter school, you haven't seen them all. Um, a lot of charter schools have workforce development programs or STEM education. Um, and so at the end of the day, a lot of these parents are coming from a variety of different backgrounds, um, suburban and urban areas, um, it is by no means a left-right political debate, and uh, they have wide support um, from many on various groups. 
And one of the things we can get into with these charter schools as we start to delve into what you've been writing about it is um, I tend to be an all of the above guy on most really touchy issues like, okay, well, if we have options for people, that's usually the way that we get more freedom in a lot of ways. There's exceptions, of course. I feel like education is one of those things we can do a lot of all of the above sort of thing. You talked about it in your piece. If, if you're going to have a school in New York City, it's going to probably reflect New York City. If you're going to have a school in you know, rural Alabama, it's probably going to reflect the more values and people of rural Alabama. So if we can give some leeway to these charter schools, the folks and the parents, those, it, you're, you're still going to get what you're looking for in the school. And this is a good way to actually have a little bit of choice and freedom while still being inside of the public domain, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, there's certain areas, especially like, say, uh, in urban areas in New York, there's a lot of charter schools that kind of have these, these quote, no-nonsense charter schools where they have very strict um, school cultures. And that's actually what these parents want. They want these kids to have a sense of structure um, so that they have a better chance of going to college. This doesn't work for every single child, but it may work for some, especially um, for parents who are looking for that education. All right. So this gets up to where you were writing, though, is there's caps on these. Um, there's a lot of political pressure involved. Define it for us, though. What is a cap on a charter school? What does that actually mean? Who's pushing for that and what does it do? So I'll give you a couple examples of, of two different caps. Um, so at the start of COVID uh, in the spring of 2020, I was uh, working in Portland, Oregon, and the governor of Oregon, Kate Brown, um, you know, shut down uh, traditional public schools or public schools in general um, and said, you know, we're, we're moving to online learning. And so right away, uh, the public schools had a really tough time with this transition. A lot of the teachers hadn't done, I mean, who didn't have a tough time with the transition, right? Uh, it was, it was kind of shocking out of nowhere. Um, but traditional public schools took much longer, um, in this transition, leaving a lot of the students without any education. They were just kind of stuck at home. Um, hopefully their parents were teaching them a little bit if they're able to uh, get away from their jobs. Um, and spend that time. While uh, charter schools, on the other hand, um, a lot of these charter schools are actually already online. So there's, they already have the infrastructure in place to best serve these students. And then a lot of charter schools, because of their flexibility, were able to move online fairly quickly. And so parents, naturally, what do they do? They, want, they see their child's not learning and they see some other kids um, already had this learning infrastructure in place. So they transferred their kids into these online charter schools. Well, it turns out that worked for a little bit until there's a cap in terms of um, only 3% of children in district are allowed to transfer to a, a charter school or an online virtual charter school. And so that's like a student enrollment cap. In New York, there's actually a cap on the amount of charter schools that are able to be opened. So like I was mentioning earlier, charter schools have to be authorized um, by a charter school authorizer, either at the local or the state level usually. And there's only a certain amount of charter schools that are allowed to be open. And in New York City, that's 290. And right now, all of the charter, um, the charters have been given out to these schools. However, there's a tons of people like Eva Moskowitz, who runs the Success Academy, which is arguably the most successful charter network in the country. Um, you know, her students, it seems like every single year, it's like, oh, 100% of our kids are graduating and going to college um, from lower income communities where that's not usually the norm. Um, she's unable to open up more schools right now to allow more students and um, especially in a school system that has demonstrated the ability to close the achievement gap in learning. Um, and so those are kind of two examples of the charter school caps that we're seeing right now. 
Yeah, Cooper Conway joining us. We're going to come back to this after the break. We're going to talk more about the Caps, going to talk more about charter schools, going to talk about the debate about them, the overhang of COVID, which is a real thing in education. Enrollments in some public schools are down. Enrollments in some public and private schools like charter schools are changing. We'll talk about that. More Cooper Conway, more education talk on Tell right after this. Tell talking education, our friend Cooper Conway back on the program after a long absence. We'll have you back sooner this time, my friend. All right, we'll talk in a little bit about the charter schools and the caps. Here, here's where I start having um, questions. I'm one of those parents you just discussed. I was home with my kids, they were out of school for over 15, 16 months, really 18 months when you put it all together. Um, and then they only went back for like a six week period for that last little bit. And then they went to a full school year. They didn't do the back and forth. They were out and they were done and they went straight virtual. It was another cluster, especially the first couple months. Nobody knew what was going on. It wasn't great. However, um, as it went along, it started to reveal some things. It revealed how teachers teach. It reveals how teachers learn. Um, did we take any lessons from that? when it starts to come to things like charter school, private school, and improving public schools, or did everybody just kind of collectively get frustrated, move on, and we're right back to the old trench lines we've always fought over in education? Well, I would say that there was a lot of, I mean, undoubtedly, there was a lot of frustration. And uh, online learning works for some kids, um, but not for every kid. And I think that became uh, more apparent as time went on. And also, I think the flexibility of maybe some kids taking online classes every once in a while has become more of an option that's a little bit more mainstream. Um, But also, it depends on parents being able to make this choice. And at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. You know, parents are going to be able to know what works better for their child, Um, whether you said like, oh, maybe it's homeschooling and we have the capabilities to do that, or maybe it's sending them to an online virtual charter school or maybe it's sending them to a traditional in-person public school or private school. And so really the goal here now is to kind of figure out how can we create um, as many options that are high quality as possible um, for a child. And I think that the way to do that is through school choice and letting um, the money follow the student and not necessarily the system. Okay. But that gives us right back to this cap thing you were talking about, because it seems to me, and let's call it what it is. A lot of these cap schools wind up being in urban areas. They end up being in places where the school system is struggling. It seems really cruel to me. I We've seen the videos now because some of this is on live video, the lotteries to get into these charter schools and just yeah. the heartbreaking stuff. It seems almost cruel to me, especially in these bad school environments, whether it's an urban area or an area where the school system is maybe corrupt. Shoot, we've got a couple really big school systems right now having sexual assault problems and abuse from the staff and people want to get this. If you got something like that going on and then you have a cap where the parents are doing a lottery trying to get their kids out. That, that that's almost becoming a moral thing to me because that really seems cruel that we're like, oh, we're going to dangle this thing over here, but only certain people can have it. These caps, tell me this isn't just straight up rationing of education because it's sure how it feels. Uh, I, I wish I could tell you that it wasn't the case. Um, 
you know, the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools came out with a study a couple of years ago, and they were like, well, right now there's about three and a half million students that are enrolled in charter schools, right? But if we kind of got rid of the caps and allowed charter schools to open and didn't put as many restrictions on them, they estimated that an additional five million kids. And you're right, uh, charter schools are, are free and they're open to all, but they do only have so much space right now. And so you do have these lotteries. I mean, think of it like this is like you were putting you were calling this a lottery. You're, you're getting lucky. You're hitting you're getting all the money in the world, basically. But really, it's just a, a child's education, having a child be able to go to a good school. Uh, and that does seem wrong. And so the way I look at it is why are we capping success? Uh, why are we capping the opportunity for a child to learn in an environment that works best for them? Um, from an academic standpoint and also from a safety standpoint. It really does not make any sense. And I think that if we're trying to build the, the K through 12 uh, education system of the future, we can't wait anymore and hope, you know, keep telling these parents um, from communities with terrible schools that have been failing for decades, oh, it's just going to get a little bit better. You know, we'll just spend some more money and hopefully it'll turn around. Like these, these kids can't wait. They need, a, they need a better education now. And if that means going to the public charter school, um, we should find a way for them to get in there. Yeah. And these arguments keep, here we go again. Another cyclical argument wind up is like, okay, well, these public schools are failing. Like, well, if you're funding charter schools, that's why the public schools are failing. That's not what the data says. And in fact, we found out post COVID school enrollments are down. Now the problem here is the education system, the public education system, I should say, is not meant to ever shrink, but in a lot of places, either because of demographic change, because of economic change, whatever the case may be, some of these schools are shrinking. They're not designed to do that. They're, there's funding issues. There's political pressures. How do you go from uh, making the argument? Because, again, you said charter schools are public schools. Here we are, the same argument again. It's like, well, the one's failing, so the other one's doing good. So, therefore, that one's taking from this one. How do we reflexively fight back against that? Because that's the argument that's always going to be made here, isn't it? Yeah, that is the argument that's always going to be made. And it makes sense why people think, oh, that money is shifting away um, from the traditional public school. So obviously this means there's less money in the public school and things are going to get worse. But that's, according to many empirical studies, that's not the case at all. In fact, um, when these charter schools are put into place, um, there was actually a recent study in February that said once charter school um, has a 10% enrollment share in districts, uh, that district actually sees a six percentage point increase um, in math and then a three percentage point increase in, in reading and then almost a 3% percentage increase in high school graduation rates as well from a couple of uh, Tulane researchers there. And so it's really the competition starts to make the public school say, oh, we have to get better, um, it seems like. And that's the case in that they uh, create a better system overall. Uh, yeah. And let's, let's do something else here, too. If we're going to talk education freedom, we got to admit this. I didn't like the online thing. I think my children suffer. I I can tell you directly because I saw the grace. Uh, they suffered not just because they the work, but because they you know lost a lot of caring because they felt like they were getting jerked around because they were getting jerked around. A lot of kids this generation feel that way. But some folks like the new technology and they like the online school. We noticed the thing you mentioned it on Twitter. I talked about it as well. Um, Khan Academy's been around for a while, but they've actually taken a next step here. They've partnered with Arizona State University. They've offered a compatible world-class online high school for free. I don't like it. A lot of people don't like the online school. Some people got a taste of it and really, really liked it. Don't we have to acknowledge there's one of those things, well, I don't like it, but if we're going to have diversity and freedom in education, this is probably a good thing to have floating out there too for those that want it. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's completely the argument. Uh, not everybody is going to have the, the same taste. Um, I know personally, a lot, my college went online and I actually really enjoyed the online classes. 
Um, I felt like I was able to work at my own pace, which I think was a little bit quicker um, than usual. And I was also able to focus on, you know, my writing and being able to go on uh, great shows like yours. And so that worked out for me. Um, but also there's tons of students I talked to who really did not like the online and couldn't wait till we were back in person to have these conversations um, in class amongst our peers, which I also enjoy. Um, and so I think if there's a child who goes to school and just socially doesn't feel well there, or they're, you know, say they're bullied, for example, why would you want to stay in a school where you're bullied and you have the opportunity to learn online at your own pace? Um, I'd much rather do that and send my child there if that works better for them. Yeah, Cooper Conway joining us. Okay, the one we haven't talked about just yet, uh, private schools. There's good and bad to them. And, and let's be adults here. There's good and bad private schools, just like there's good and bad public schools. What's the current path for them? Because uh, one of the things they are super susceptible to, we're seeing it right now, is economic hardship. Uh, when you start having things like high inflation, high cost of living, First thing that goes, those really expensive school tuitions for a lot of family. Uh, it's not for everybody, but do we are we at the point where we probably need to redefine and make sure we codify, since that's the word of the day all of a sudden for rudimentary lawmaking, do we need to have some more protection for private schools to exist? Not that they don't need oversight, not that they don't need accountability, but there does seem to be kind of a push by some in professional big education to just eradicate them all together. Don't, do you think we need some legislative protection for things like private schools? Yeah, I think we can get legislative protection in the form of, um, you know, school choice and education savings accounts uh, and having the ability to give the parents if a public or, um, or a public charter school isn't working for their child um, to put the money in these savings accounts that allow the families to um, use them at a, like a voucher at like a private school or for any private education expense, whether it's tutoring, uh, special needs therapies, um, books, you know, any of the like that works best to be able to customize the education for the child. Cause like we were, like we've been saying the whole time, one size does not fit all. And so while a traditional public school may be great for one child, it may be terrible for the other. And that's the same thing with private schools, charter schools, these online virtual schools. Um, and so the opportunity to make these parents who perhaps are unable to pay um, twice, basically, for their education, like most in America right now, um, and say, let's just have the, the money follow your child um, to wherever they go, because that's really the goal at the end of the day, is to be able to educate the child and uh, not prop up the system. Yeah, Cooper Conway. Okay. Uh, I've had children that went to both private school and public school. Uh, I went to both public school and private school. I, I'm not against either or for either. You tell me, because you're a little bit different generation than me, though. I think this is another one of those real hot button issues where we need to just change how we talk about it. What do you think is some more productive nomenclature or ways to say it that gets away from the buzzwords that fire people up so much when it comes to education? So when folks are on their social media, uh, when folks are talking about these issues to each other, what's a better way to discuss something like school choice? Because even the phrase, you know, school choice has now been kind of weaponized. And then you have, you know, public school and then defund it if you try to fund anything else. What do you think some of the language things we can do to kind of change this when we're trying to talk about it? Yeah, I usually like to focus on uh, educational opportunity. Uh, it's kind of because a lot of for a lot of kids, um, for wealthier kids, they're always going to have education opportunity. They're able to buy a house in a nicer neighborhood um, where there's better public schools. Um, they're able to pay for a private school. Um, they're able to pay for tutoring or one on one lessons or all these different types of things. But um, for students without the opportunity to go live in a nicer neighborhood where they're just kind of zoned for um, a, a bad public school for them, 
um, the opportunity to be able to escape that and go to a, a charter school uh, or a private school is really the way that I like to look at it. And we can really kind of uh, close this achievement gap that's being seen in our, our education system right now. And so if we gave these kids these funds and let them be able to um, have the flexibility to use them on these different education expenses, um, we can really, you know, change the American K through 12 education, which hasn't seen disruption in a long time. Yeah. And I think achievement gap is something to focus on. There's like, we need to quit worrying about putting success with the funding number and start putting it with, are these actually productive citizens when they're done with the education system? That seems to be the gap, but that's another topic for another day. Cause we'd love to get you back on. We need to, we need to expand education again. I'll go back to it again. When it comes to freedom issues, I'm usually an all of the above guy, you know, let people go to college, let people go to vocational schools, train people, you know, all the, my kid just did it. She graduated high school with basically an associate's degree because she dual course with the community college. You know, there's a lot of options out there for kids and we don't talk about the options quite enough. Let me give you the last word on this. What do you think the next battle in this is? I know we did the school board fights and we did COVID and we did CRT and all that school choice wise, things like this. What do you think the next debate in education is going to be going forward? Oh, that's, I mean, that's a tough question. Uh, I think the next debate is going to be... You're a college grad. You can handle it now. I'm going to ask you yeah, harder questions so going so. forward. <laughs> um, from a K through 12 perspective, I, I guess it's going to be what's going to be the end goal, uh, like we we're talking about. For so long, it's been, well, let's just funnel all these kids into college. And I think more people are having the discussion of, is college the right choice for me, uh, especially with the prospects of taking on these student loans. And then, you know, maybe these, uh, maybe our K through 12 systems should be more focused on workforce development. I think that's where the next lane is going to be. Um, I may be a little too early to tell on that one, uh, but I guess we'll see. No, I agree with you because we keep talking about the educational bubble and whether it's going to pop. If it does, that's where it's going to come from is people not getting the options they need. Great stuff as always. Cooper Conway, been too long. You're a professional now. We'll have you back on very soon to herd tell until we get you back though let folks know where you're writing what you got going on how to follow you on social media until they see you on the program again yep you can see uh thank you so much for having me on you can see all of my writings on the young voices uh, website and then you can follow me on twitter at cooper conway with the number one on the end uh, so it's always a pleasure i appreciate it yeah i love talking to you you do good work my friend uh we'll talk again real real soon thank you for the time today sounds good thank you thanks cooper back to herd tell um let's go to northern virginia real quick raytheon technologies is moving from massachusetts to arlington now what does this have a big deal remember a couple of weeks ago we touched on a story about boeing leaving the chicago area after making a big show of moving out of seattle to chicago about 20 years ago now raytheon is also moving to northern virginia basically the dc suburbs from the washington post raytheon technologies is moving its headquarters from massachusetts to arlington virginia making it the latest aerospace giant to double down on its military business at a time of tremendous uncertainty for commercial aviation. The company said that its new headquarters would help deepen its partnership with defense and intelligence agencies. Hold on to that thought. We'll come right back to that. Headquartered in Northern Virginia, according to a Tuesday news release, it also highlighted the region's status as an airline hub. 
The location increases ability to support U.S. government and commercial aerospace customers and serve to reinforce partnerships that will progress innovative technologies to advance the industry, the company said in an unsigned statement. Raytheon becomes the latest of the big five defense contractors, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, General Dynamics, and most recently Boeing that we already talked about, to commit its corporate identity to the D.C. suburbs. Northern Virginia has long been the global epicenter of military business, but in recent years has branched out to attract a more diverse corporate clientele, including Amazon's second headquarters. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, by the way, uh, owns the Washington Post. I'm reading this from, so they have a note there. Local officials were not involved in any of the discussions to attract Raytheon to the county where the company's intelligence and space arm is based. The company said in a news release that it did not seek financial incentives from any state or municipality to relocate its headquarters. Um, the company said there would be no reduction in the defense company's Massachusetts workforce as a result of the move, and there would be a small increase in Arlington. Uh, let's just be adults and talk about this for what it really is. These companies are clustering themselves around D.C. because that's where the power base is. That's where they need to do lobbying. Government contracts are the lifeblood of these companies now. So the closer they are to there, the more entwined they are the more uh, present they are. They show face, we used to call it. Uh, this is why these companies are basing around D.C. so much. Same reason the big tech companies are increasing their presence in D.C. You want to be a power player, you got to be at the table where all the other power players are. This is something we need to bear watching, not just because of the uh, very old slogans about the military-industrial complex and how that can be very corrupt. Uh, big corporations, especially ones with government contracts, and the United States government, those relationships get incestuous really, really fast. And the fact that all these major, major companies are relocating to Northern Virginia, Arlington, the D.C. suburbs, basically they're moving to D.C. for all practical purposes is something we need to keep an eye on. Like we say about everything on Hertel, you start accountability ahead of time or you wind up with a mess later on. There needs to be accountability on the relationship between these companies and the government. There hasn't been much and a lot of people can't be bothered to worry about such things because they're too busy worried about elections and things like this. But this is a big, important part of our governance as well. The bloat and waste and fraud and skimming off the top in the Defense Department starts with moves like this. And it's something that we should be keeping an eye on. and We should pay attention to, especially when major companies like a Raytheon, like a Boeing, go out of their way to move to D.C. so that they can continue to get their big, fat government contracts. It's not that we don't need them. We need what they do. There should be a partnership there. There's also a whole lot of untoward stuff going on and unworthy schemers that take advantage of it, especially when the American people and our representatives in Washington can't be bothered to pay attention. Or worse, they're in on it. More hard tell right after this. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
here's a good note for us to end on. A dog swam several miles to shore after she fell off the back of a shrimp boat in San Leon, Texas. The canine named Mr. Monster regularly joins her owner, Captain Keith Kiwi Softs, on his shrimp boat, but fell overboard on a recent outing. We were just heading back to the dock. Monster was doing her regular old thing. She always does. He told KRIV, goes back there and barks at the birds, does monster things. We got to where we were going to load the nets and put it at the back of the boat to come home. And she always goes back there, grabs the nets and starts pulling on it. And then she wasn't there, the owner said. As soon as Soft realized his dog was missing and must have fallen off the boat in open water, he set out to find her. I said, where's she at? And in the middle of the bay, pretty much. I mean, you know, open water, four or five miles out of any land. My heart just fell. I couldn't even speak. We were going to find her. I looked up and down the coast. Unfortunately, Softs didn't locate Monster and decided to share the story of the missing dog on social media. Don't worry, though. Long story short, five days went by and I started posting more and more and more. And I was like, she couldn't have made it in that kind of a swim. There's no way a dog swam that far. After searching the neighborhood, Sos found his beloved pet at a nearby trailer park. The lady mentioned I was crying so hard I couldn't even talk. She was giving me so many kisses. I think she swam. I think her swimming every day saved her life. Just her being on the boat, being used to the water. Pretty cool story. Uh, good looking dog. Kind of a pit mix. That beautiful gray collar they get. Uh, you can look it up. It's linked in the show notes. That'll do it all for her tell for today. Thank you for joining us wherever you are across the street or around the world. Sure, appreciate it. Don't forget you can reach out to us at hertellshow, gmail.com, at hertellshow on the Twitter We'd love to hear from you, and we appreciate you so very much paying attention, listening, giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, and we thank you very much for it. So until we talk to you again, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you're well-fed. We'll talk again real soon on Herdtail. All the music on Herdtail is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. So, let me